To give a human example, brothers, even, when a, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, but the offspring should come until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is then the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Good morning. morning. I want to thank the worship team for just beautifully leading us into uh, this passage today. It's been on my heart for a couple of weeks. As you know, I was off last week. Supposed to have been here actually to enjoy someone else bringing the word, and it was great to have Tim here, but Janice and I both came down with a terrible head cold and all the rest of it that most of you have had uh, maybe multiple times this year. So continue to pray. I'm going to pray again, actually, before we get into this this morning, because my head is still feeling like a big cotton ball. So we're going to need help there, but also on this passage. And I just thank you again. The words of these songs that we sang today were so applicable and beautiful uh, to the grace that God has given to us, which we live in, which is sufficient and beautiful and perfect. Amen? It's, all, it's the story right there. So pray with me, would you? We're going to need this this morning. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much one more time to be here in your presence. We know that you are with us all the time. Holy Spirit, we're praying, especially today, that you would, um, you would fill this place with your presence, but Lord, that you would also strengthen us, me in particular, Lord, me in particular. I pray that, Lord, not just for my physical need, but for my mental, emotional, and my heart need. And so, Lord, I just pray that these words that you've given in the scripture, but also the words you've given to me today to impart to my brothers and sisters here, this family here today, that this would be helpful and that we would be blessed and encouraged by it. And we would know way, way more about you, about this God that's planned this amazing, amazing grace-saving, unmerited favor that saves us. And so, Father, I just thank you for that. And I pray for your blessings today in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So if you don't already, you should have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 3. If you are visiting today and you don't have a Bible, we have some on the side here. We really encourage it that that you have a Bible. I know that many of you have got apps and phones, and so you can do that and tablets and and have it open and be in it and and, and mark it up and mess it up and take notes because it's... It's so important to go into God's Word that way. And, and again, as Matt had said, for us to go into community during the week and to be able to have questions and, and, and to talk with one another. I've heard things coming back to me uh, about what's going on in our missional community groups uh, throughout uh, Squamish, and it's so encouraging to hear that people are finishing dinner and then, boom, Bibles are opened right there on the table, and people are digging in and going in and asking questions and growing through asking the questions and having questions answered and learning more about who God is and what He has done. 
So as we look at this passage today, I, I, was, I was rummaging around this past week um, looking for a, a number of different things and just some ideas, and I ran, a, I ran across this really interesting article. It was on a website for the American Psychological Association, and it was an article entitled, What You Need to Know About Willpower, The Psychological Science of Self-Control. Science is awesome, isn't it? It can answer all of our questions. Right, so I got, I got intrigued just by the title of the article, and I had to read it, and I did. And it was really interesting. It was about an in-depth survey that they did, uh, over, questioning over a number of years, thousands of people. And it was, the results were gleaned by these clinical psychologists, these, I quote, scientists. And they came up with some really interesting things. One of the key findings was this. Uh, that the largest percentage of, of all of the respondents, the number one key reason they were unable to, at least according to the survey, attain some of their most important life goals uh, in areas like, for example, eating right and correctly, uh, exercising regularly, avoiding drugs and alcohol, uh, saving for retirement, anger management, you name it, all those areas. The number one reason that they said they could not achieve these goals was because of a lack of willpower, right? It was just laid out there like, that's the thing. You need willpower. We need more of it. We fail and we succeed. It it was great. This article was amazing. Their study observed that everyone, everyone in the survey believed in something called willpower. They really believed it existed, although the psychologists at the end of the survey weren't quite sure what this willpower thing was, which was really, really interesting. So my big takeaway from this article and study was this. Willpower was uh, dependent on both negative and positive things or factors. The negative were, or the negatives were, was temptations, right? So like one of the things that in order to achieve your goals that you had to have more willpower for were the temptations, right? Like I'm trying to get my eating under control and there's that cake, you know, like, and, and so I need more willpower to avoid it. And so there was this negative stuff about what's behind us or what's holding us back, But then the positive was kind of twofold. I need willpower, uh, obviously, to stay on track, but also I needed needed a a reward of some kind that would help me have more uh, willpower. And oddly enough, the reward was often the same thing that was a temptation. So like, yeah, I'm going to work really hard to lose all that weight or get in shape, whatever it might be. And then at the end of three months, when I'm down whatever number of pounds, I've decided I'm going to have that cake. It's crazy when you think about it, right? Like, we're weird, don't you think? Like, the way we... we, So it's... I think it's interesting. Here's the deal. I think it's a universal need. It's a universal thought. And again, you know me. We always ask this question, where does that stuff come from? You see, in and of itself, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous, wonderful preacher, once said, it's not a bad thing. Willpower is not a bad thing. It's necessary. It's good. It just can be the only thing that we rely on. And we should know as human beings, when we rely on human willpower, we fail. (laughs) Every single time, we fail. But we still need to have it. And so, you know, we always ask the question, where did it come from? Well, obviously, if it's a good thing, and there are good things about will and the power to accomplish things, it's a God-given trait. It's part of the Imago Dei. It's part of our DNA, and yet we, we don't quite understand it, so it doesn't always work out for us the way we would hope. So here's our big takeaway. This is something you may want to mark down. I didn't put in your notes today, but I'm hoping you'll see this as we look at this passage. When human willpower fails us, God's power and promise can and will, I could always put in there, always sustain us. Amen? Amen. 
So here's your, our, our message title for today is Standing on the Promises of God. I was talking to Wayne yesterday, and I never, I just thought about the title actually yesterday, so I, I could have said to the worship team, there's a song. Like, it's awesome, right? Standing on the Promises of God. Three things I want to show you today. First of all, a little bit of an excursus, an aside on God's family. I think, and I hope you'll see it's pertinent to the passage. And then number two, God's perfect promise. And number three, God's perfect law. So looking at 3.15 one more time, and this is from the NIV today because I want to show you something here. Uh, We usually use the ESV as a translation. There are lots of good translations. We just like to be all on the same page. But today I want to start with the ESV's translation of this, and I'll show you why. It says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. So now, as I say, it's, it's a bit of an aside, but it's a really important point. You're all going to recall that if we go back in this letter... Paul starts the letter to the Galatians very differently than he he wrote any other letter. Every other letter starts off with, this is who I am, and and by the way, I love you. You're amazing. You know, I miss you. I can't wait to get to you. I've heard really good stories about you. He's always saying really nice things about the church, even the church in Corinth, and then he really goes after them, right? This is what you're doing wrong. But in this particular case, none of that, almost none of that. He's like, I'm astonished at your behavior. I'm disappointed in you that you're listening to these Judaizers. He's pretty harsh. And it's it's a very unfriendly and disturbing tone, quite frankly. And I think sometimes as we've been going through this, you've been seeing that. But now for the first time since chapter 1, verse 11, he actually starts talking to them like friends and family again. He uses the word brothers, and the NIV translates that brothers and sisters, which is a good translation. But here's what I want you to hear from this. The ESV is actually more accurate. It's a better translation. Um, The word in the Greek is eldalphos, which is a masculine plural noun. And so to to our North American ears, I know when we hear that, it's a little bit bit crazy, but I want you to hear this. It's not because Paul and Jesus, uh, for that matter, were stuck in some patriarchal vortex that forced them to perpetuate this male-oriented language. And this is why I think in, in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen so much uh, of an attempt to, to gender neutralize the scripture. And there's some sensitivities there. We understand that. Even in the ESV, when you see brothers, there's a little note there that says, down below, brothers and sisters. The implication is there. But what I want you to see today is, is that God's word is written in a certain way for good reasons. And if we don't, if we just allow culture and our sensitivities to those things to change our mind on these issues, we might miss the actual blessing that's here. And so I want to give you a little illustration about that. Um, Obviously, today in the church, calling someone a a brother is a bit weird, right? It's it's a little bit like me, uh, like walking away from here and walking over to this fellow over here and saying, good morning, brother. Morning, James. Brother, how you doing? Now, just in case you don't know, James and I are actually brothers, just from different mothers, okay? Okay. yeah, and he, he was the one who got the good looks, which is really important. Uh, but to our North American ears, come on, that sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Like when I walk over and say, good morning, brother. Like if we were all out in the Fourier and everyone's going, morning, brother, morning, sister, morning, mom, morning, dad, morning, uncle, you know, aunt, whatever, in relationship in a family, it would sound a little bit weird, right? It would be a little bit like those homeschooled Amish people, right? <laughs> like we would kind of go, and if, if your friends were here that you had invited to church, I love the Amish, got to be careful here. But if you invited people into that situation, right, people would be like, okay, these guys are weird. This could be a cult. You know, like, what are they doing? Why are they using that language? Now, listen, hear me. 
You guys know, those of you who are rocksters, that from day one, since we planted this church, we've always been about, let's get the language right, right? Let, let's, let's understand what the language should actually be. And we've, we've come to these conclusions, you know. Um, the church is not a building, place, or an event. We are the church. We, the, we are the church. We define ourselves at the rock, based on a number of teachings that we've been through, as a family, because when we're saved, we're baptized into the family of God, right? That's a very important part of baptism. We're a family of missionary servants. We're servants because we serve our King, Jesus, and we serve Him by serving others, and we're missionaries, sent ones in the power of the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples and make disciples. So we, we've, we've come to this identity by looking at the Scripture and understanding it more rightly. Well, we also call ourselves family, right? We're a family, and, 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 and this is a difficult situation. I know some of you have been talking about this in small group, about well, what, which family is the priority, right? And that's a great challenge in our North American culture. And so I just want us to think of it this way. I, I want to ask the question this way. Why is that so odd? If, if we really, in our minds, think of ourselves as family, why is it so odd to say that about each other? I think it's something that we need to see that the Scripture is saying, you are this, this is who you are, act like it, behave it that way. You know, when, when Jesus uh, um, was, you know, you know the teaching, when he was um, uh, one time in a, in a home and he's teaching and his mother and brothers had missed him, he'd been away from home for a long time, traveling and preaching the kingdom of God, and they came and they're outside the door and they're like... Um, yeah, we're a little bit worried about him. He hasn't come home. He hasn't, you know, phoned mom in a long time. No texts, no nothing, right? And we'd, we, we were worried about him. We'd like to see him. And so a messenger comes in and says, Jesus, you know, your mom and dad are outside. You should go talk to them. What did Jesus say? Do you remember? And some people would think it was quite disrespectful to his mother and father, but it wasn't. What he said is this. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever, look, does the will of God is my brother and sister and my mother. Jesus came to begin a new family group. Prior to Jesus was the people of Israel, the family of God, the chosen people of Israel. And Jesus came to produce this new family group. And so listen, as we unpack these verses today, I want to see a number of things here. Paul is now changing the tone of the letter to a, a, a loving tone, and he's going, to, he's going to call upon them as brothers and sisters and as family. Come on, guys. Let's stick to the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. End of story. Well, there's more, but that, that's the primary part of the gospel. And nothing else. There's nothing that you need to do. He did it all. And so he's appealing to their hearts in that respect. And so I just want to encourage us that if we today, if we're going to go around and we're going to love our nuclear family, our blood family, and we're going to introduce each other in that way, how about we also do the same for our blood-bought family? Amen? That's a bit of a challenge. Let's not all get Amish in the, in the foyers we're leaving here today, but I want you to think about that and put that in your perspective. Because listen, this is being written to a family in that community. It's loving, and it's to the family. And so that's why we need to see it as important. But also, I think we see his pastor's heart on display here as he writes to them as family. Secondly, we see the preacher using illustrations. Paul's not only writing this letter, he's like, when he writes, it's like it's a dictation of a sermon, right? And so now he's going to use illustrations to make it clear. This is how 
he cares so deeply for them, he's not just going to go, look, this is doctrine, you better believe it. He understands there's questions. People don't understand things. I don't understand things. You don't understand things. We're on this together. And so he's giving illustrations, and it's a beautiful illustration that he uses today. He wants all of the Christians in that time and place to understand their relationship with the law of God, because that was becoming the big question in that day and in that age. And so it's the greatest challenge, defending the gospel of faith alone and Christ alone when there are those who have failed to understand the purpose of the law and the relationship with faith and grace. I mentioned some people in prayer this morning that I I can't put a bow on this for you today. (laughs) This is a shameful plug for the next two Sundays that you got to be here for the next two Sundays for us to put this all together. We're only going to start with one part of our relationship with the law and with grace today. And uh, we're going to need to unpack it over several weeks. So, so when we hear, listen, when we hear this outstanding claim of salvation by grace, we might feel like asking this question. Wait. This is what they were asking in that day. If we're free from the law, does that mean we don't have to obey the law of God anymore? If it's I'm completely and perfectly saved by Jesus and what he has done and, and not what I need to do, well... Why do I have to pursue righteousness? Why do I have to worry about whether I mess around or anything or do anything wrong? Why do I have to worry about that? Grace, man. Grace, grace, grace. This is a concern, and this is the question that's being asked here. Do I have any obligations whatsoever to be concerned about the law anymore? Why do I need to be good, to be holy, to even worry about it? And, of course, there's that wonderful catch-all that people have. Aren't we under grace and no longer under the law? That's a perfect one, right? You know, anytime you don't want to obey anything that you know God says in his word, it's like, well, we're under grace. Let's just throw it into that basket, right? And we don't have to respond to it. This is exactly what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with it not not to put burdens on us, quite the opposite. He's dealing with it so that we will understand the beautiful symmetry between God's grace, faith alone, and the law, the commands of God. Understood perfectly, the Christian life actually, actually becomes less of a burden, becomes much less of a burden. So this is what we're going to see in the next few weeks. It's going to to help us understand, for example, how do I treat other people? How do I properly love my wife, my children, my friends? What do I do with my money? My money, right. My body, my career, you name it. In every area of our lives, it's impacted by our understanding of law and grace. I think I said something in the beginning of this series like it's the total title of the series is The Pursuit of Liberty. The problem with liberty, true freedom in Christ for the Christian in this world today is those two extreme poles. Legalism, which we all hate, right? Doesn't everybody hate legalism? But then there's another pole. It's called license. Why don't we hate that one? <laughs> but those are the two poles and those are also poles that picture grace versus law to the extreme. And so we need to bring it together. We need to see what God has in mind for us in that area. So point number two for us today, that, by the way, was a little God's family aside for us, about brothers and family. I, I hope as we build on that, you'll see what it, why it is so important as we finish this letter. Now, back to the ESV, we see point number two, God's perfect promise. It says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds, it to, adds to it once it has been ratified. 
So in verses 15 and 17, you're going to see in the English, you're going to see the word covenant. And now we've been through it already a little bit because in chapter 2, Paul, and beginning of chapter 3, Paul goes back into the Old Testament, right, to talk about the covenantal relationships between God and his people. And so that, that, that's, a, that's another word, really, that's another picture, because the picture that really Paul is trying to pr- present today is a Greek word for covenant, which could literally be translated last will and testament. In, in the Greek, Greek, uh, Greco-Roman world, that Greek word would normally, to a Greek hearer, and remember, the Galatians are all Greeks, they're Gentiles, well, Greeks, Romans, a big mix, but they're Gentiles, and that word in the Greek to them would mean, oh, that's a last will and testament. That's, that's you know, like when someone's going to die, they, they write a will, and then, you know, it, it's, there it is. And so that's what Paul is leaning into. He's speaking to that type of definition, and there's a lot of judicial language, kind of court language, and we can also see the Apostle Paul in the way he's presented. He's very much like a lawyer, presenting his case here to you and I and to the people in Galatia. And so he uses a well-understood human man-made last will and testament to show us, listen, what God's promise looks like. It's an awesome picture. He literally could be saying this, brothers and sisters, listen, we know It's even true in our human courts today that once a will has been written, attested, and signed, it can't be changed. It's done. It's perfect. It cannot be changed, especially upon the death of the individual involved. So whatever is written in that will upon the death of the person whose will it is, their wishes will be followed exactly to the letter. I was reading in one commentary about some examples of people. They were giving examples of people that they knew from the church, whatever. The kids, mom and dad, had given the money away to somebody else or to the church. Heaven forbid, right? And, and the kids were like, no, that money's ours. And they would go to court and fight for it, and they would lose. They would lose. Because even in our imperfect laws of the world today, a last will and testament, almost impossible, almost impossible to turn over. So whatever they leave, whatever material or financial, will go to those who have been chosen. And really, this, this whole picture is Paul, again, is trying to contrast for us this thing between promises and law. It's an important thing. So he goes on in verse 16 to say this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the first thing Paul does here is he takes us back to Genesis 15, which he did a few weeks ago. We went back into 15. We went into great detail. If you want to hear more about what actually happens from 12 through 22 in Genesis, this whole story, it's amazing. You listen to the podcast and get a little bit more detail. But today, all he wants to do is give us a little bit of a reminder and then add one new little wrinkle, one more little detail. So first, he reminds us that Abraham was a Christian before he became a Jew. Remember that? (laughs) I made that point a couple of weeks ago, and people were like, what? Well, yeah. God counted it to him for righteousness purely on his faith and trust in God that God would provide not only a child for he and Sarah in their old dead bodies, which is a big miracle, but that he would provide a substitute, a savior. And it was based on that faith before the people of Israel ever became the people of Israel that he was a Christian. He was a Christian before he actually became a Jew. 
And so we saw that in this particular picture, and it was an amazing thing. But, but also, he had faith that from him would come many offspring, because God took him outside and said, look at all the stars, I'm going to create a great nation from you, but that there would be one in particular who would be the substitute, who would be the Savior. And he didn't know his name at the time, but his name would be Jesus Christ. So let's see this here. Paul is saying this. The promise came first. God's promise to not only Abraham, not only to the people of Israel, but to you and I, that came first. It's like a human will and testament, last will and testament. It cannot be broken, and it's pointing to Jesus. And then I love this, because Paul's legal mind is, is on fire here. And I can just, you know, just see him writing this. I get, actually, I can't, but I can imagine him writing this. And, and he's like, okay, like, I'm building a pretty good case here. I really am. I'm a good Jew. I know the Old Testament. I know what's going on. I'm building a good, good case. And, and, and he's, he's pushing it forward, but, but he knows there's still a big question, a big objection out there. He knows his audience better than they actually know himself, themselves. And so he goes on in verse 17 and says, look, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, do you notice the the words that he adds here that were not just a few verses earlier? He adds a very important two words. Ratified by whom? By God. Not some human clerk or court. By God. So Paul knows the minds of the Judaizers. I mean, come on. He was one of them. <laughs> he was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He, he knew this stuff better than most of them, if not all of them, that are there in Galatia at the time. They've come to believe that the law, which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, they came to believe that, look, this was the big game changer. This changed everything in their minds anyway. The law, which came through Moses, their, their opinion would be it moved the goalposts. At least so they thought. Their idea was this. If, if we're ever going to receive the blessing, the promise that was given to Abraham, we're going to have to be people who've got really amazing willpower, and we're going to have to keep all these laws. And, and the proof is, any of you who know your Old Testament at all, even a little bit, you know they sure gave themselves to it, didn't they? They gave themselves to this, this law-keeping and so their idea was kind of crazy. It would, if they were to receive the promises, the blessings of Abraham, they were now going to have to work for it. And so now we need to obey the law of Moses to be right with God. It's amazing also, if you think about it, they went from having Father Abraham to now Father Moses. It was like he, in their minds at least, superseded these things. But the truth is, in this passage and in this whole letter, Paul's not going to have any of this. He's like, no. You got it wrong, guys. His statement is firm and conclusive. He says this, the law does not, cannot in fact, I mean, look at all the legal language here, annul a will that was ratified, as I said, by God, not some clerk, lawyer, or human magistrate. And Paul's like, imagine, imagine what that would mean, guys. Stop for a second and think about, and you guys all know this because we've been through this so far in the letter, imagine if that was true what this would in fact mean. It would mean that God made a promise, hear me, God made a promise that he decided at some point in time to annul. That's a nice word for break. God decided to break his promise? Whoa. 
Wait a second. Yeah, I don't think so. That's what that would suggest, though, is it not saying that? And, and replace it literally with a new way of being saved? Let me ask you a question. Why then send Jesus? <laughs> At that point, if that's all true, why then send Jesus? And, and why, why have him sacrificed on the cross for our sins? It would make no sense. And so, of course, the people in that day, and I think some of us believe that, well, wait a second, maybe this actually is the way to save ourselves. All we really need is a little bit more willpower. Willpower. So listen, it would also mean that God would only bless us based on performance and not by promise. It would change everything. I want us to see over the next three weeks that the law is... For before the cross, the law is for the cross, and the law is with us after the cross in specific and important ways. But it's not about performance. It's about promise. promise. And the amazing thing is that Jesus came into this world, and he was able to live and keep the law perfectly, was he not? That was the whole point of him being able to do that. So listen, we need to see that. He's basically saying that Paul's concluding here, if you believe then that the law isn't just added to the promise, it makes it null and void. And then he adds this, for listen, look, if, if is the important word here, I should have highlighted and underlined it for you because I did in my notes, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. That's the conclusion to it, but then he goes on and says, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the inheritance, the inheritance of what? Jesus, grace in Christ, and then the inheritance that we have in him. From the moment we place our faith in him, we have that inheritance. We have that perfect standing before God that is immutable, unchangeable. When he looks at you and he looks at me every day, no matter what we do in Christ, he says, perfect. And we go, excuse me? Wait a second. I messed up last week. I, I, I did two or three times. Like, see, I'm, I was raised Catholic, so I got this thing about confession, right? That, that, that you got to go and make it and do your penance before you're good with God again. And God's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're totally misunderstanding my grace and my law. I want to put that together for you so you understand the law before the cross, at the cross, and after the cross. And that's the point of these teachings that Paul is getting to. This is the most important point. So listen, I want to give you a couple of illustrations to try to put this together. Um, and I'm hoping uh, that it's going to be helpful. I'm not positive, but I hope it will be. I know most of you know that Janice and I uh, love our three boys. We love them to death. We really do, okay? We love them. <clears throat> and, uh, um, you know, so I want you to imagine uh, me saying to, to Matt, one of our three sons who's, who's here this morning, I want you to imagine me saying to him, buddy, I want, you to, I want you to know this. I've not told you this before, and I'm actually making it public in front of all these people. But mom and I have somehow been able to squirrel away a million bucks. Okay? A million dollars. I know. He just said excellent. And, and, and here's the deal. Um, what I want you to do is I, I, I'm, I'm going to give it to you, and not after we die. I'm going to give it to you sometime soon in the future. And the only thing I ask of you to do is just believe me. Just believe it. There's nothing else that you have to do. Just believe it. Now, <laughs> the truth of the matter is, uh, here's the problem. If, if, if Matt were to do what he is actually doing right now, which is have his arms folded, looking at me, kind of going, yeah, this is a joke, right? 
Uh, yeah, you're kidding, right? No, no, Dad, come on. And, and now you see, so look, you look at him. Like, oh, no, now he's saying he thinks it's, it's real. No, but if he were to be shaking his head, waving his hand at me and saying, Dad, come on, that's, yeah, thanks, I know. It's an illustration, but it's not going to happen. Well, the truth is he would lose his inheritance, wouldn't he? Because it's a promise. Either you trust it or you don't. It's a promise. It's a promise given. And so now there's the other option. What if I was to say to Matt, here's the deal, bud. <clears throat> I got the million bucks. I'm going to give it to you. We're going to give it to you. Mom and I are going to give it to you. But it's not until we die. And, and here's the deal. Number one is you're going to have to do a bunch of things uh, in order to get this million bucks. Number one thing you're going to have to do is die in Squamish. Wait a second. Is that my notes? <laughs> That's an inside joke. It's a joke. Okay, just saying it because number of people think certain things, I think. <laughs> But you're going to have to do that, and on top of that, you're going to have to cut the grass every Saturday for me. You're going to have to do this. You're going to be available, right? You're going to do announcements every week for the rest of your life. You know, whatever it might be, right? And, and you're going to have to do those things for that to take place. And so there's a big difference between those two, isn't there? There's a huge difference. Not only that, there's a huge difference in, in the way that Matt and I will relate from this moment forward, depending on which of those two propositions are given to him, Right? If the proposition is, I've got it, and I'm going to give it to you because I love you, and I want you to have it, um, and, and he believes it, it's going to be, our relation's going to be, Dad, you know, like, he's probably going to be thinking, Dad, what can I do for you? Not, not to assure that he gets it, but out of, out of honoring and respect and thankfulness, don't you think? But on the other hand, it changes. So on the one hand, for the promise to be realized, all you have to do is have faith, Right? To trust, but for a law to bring about the result you want, it must be obeyed. And so the difference Paul is getting at here is this. Let, let me substitute the word gift for promise and wage for law, and maybe it'll make it even more clear. Here's another illustration for you, and I'll put it on screen. For a gift to be received, it only needs to be believed. For a gift to be received, it only needs to be believed, but for a wage to be earned, it must be obeyed. You want me to pay you for that? Okay. Eight to ten hours a day, <laughs> five to six days a week, and you better do really good, and you better pass your performance reviews, and on and on it goes. You want to raise? Okay. More. On and on it goes. And so the beautiful picture with God is this. He, listen, he gives gifts to you and I that we don't deserve simply because he promised to. Oh, that, kinda, that should change the yardstick, shouldn't it? Doesn't that change our approach to him? And not because of anything we've done. Paul is helping us, I think, here to understand that either something comes by grace or by works. That's the point, right? Because of the giver's promise or the receiver's performance. It has to be either or the other, but it cannot be both. One of my favorite commentaries that I've been reading in preparation for this series is by John Stott, uh, pastor, theologian, and writes great commentaries. He, he, he put a wonderful bow on this, put a synopsis of this that I can't come up with. It's any better than this, and I want to give it to you. As he said this, In the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. Right? In the promise, God said, I'm doing it. I will, I will. By, by the way, it's not my willpower, but my will. I will do this. But in the law of Moses, God said, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And so the promise sets forth a religion of God. This is true Christianity right here. 
The promise of God, the religion of God is God's grace, pardon me, God's plan, God's grace, by God's, God's initiative. It's perfect. It's all about him. It's all a big done. We just get to receive his grace. And then he goes on to say, but the law sets forth a religion of man. Man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility. The promise standing for the grace of God only had to be believed. But the law standing for the works of men had to be obeyed. So now I'm sure at this point, I'm sure at this point, when the Judaizers and the Gentiles and the Galatian believers in Galatia and the churches got this, they were like, settled, done, got it. Thanks, Paul. We're good to go. I'm sure all of you right now, you've just heard this stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, got it. Never, ever, ever going to worry ever again in my life about whether or not God still loves me. Right. <laughs> Paul doesn't believe that either, and uh, he's not convinced. He's going to have to go on, and this is our last point, point three today, where he says this, because this is the question that's still out there. It's still there. It's still on the table. hasn't been answered. Paul says... He knows the questions there. Why then the law? Why was it even necessary? Why did God have to give us the law? Well, he answers his question. He says it was added because of transgressions until, important word, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, not an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So why then the law? What was its purpose then and today? Well, Paul answers this question very quickly. It was put in place because of transgressions, because of sin. Actually, see, there's a misunderstanding there even. It's like, well, God put the law in place because people were sinning, right? And and he was going, ah, I didn't see this coming. You know, I, I need to put the law in place so that these people will stop sinning. No, of course they were sinning. But the reason why he's doing it is to let them know what sin is. What, let them know what would cause a break in the covenant relationship between them and their holy and righteous and perfect God. So God didn't give us the law to tell us how to save ourselves. That's so important. It wasn't about salvation, but about sin. The promise is about salvation. And this is how we start to build our understanding of how these two relate. The law's main purpose is to show us our problem how messed up we are, that we are lawbreakers, and to prove to us that we will never, ever have enough willpower to save ourselves. Can anybody say, I'm okay with that, amen? To me, that's the most amazing thing. When, when the gospel first landed on my heart, and I, and I first, I didn't have a problem <laughs> acknowledging that I was a sinner. That wasn't the issue. But, but the idea was, well, how do I get saved? Like, how do, what do I got to do to get saved, Right? Because I, I want to be with God, and, and I certainly don't want to go in that other place, and, and all these things. And when it, when, it's, when, it, when it landed on my heart that it was because of God's grace, and there was nothing I needed to do but believe on his son, that was a game changer. Not the law. The law convicted me. I knew it was true. But the fact that God would forgive me unconditionally, now and forever, Biggest game changer ever. 
Biggest game changer ever. God didn't give us the law to tell us how to save ourselves. It wasn't about salvation, about sin. The promises. The law's main purpose, as I said, is to show us our problem, that we cannot save ourselves. Now, there's one other word here that's really important, and again, we'll build on this next week. I'm sorry for doing this, okay? But it's, you know, just trying to get you to come out. But no, it's, it's true. It's that word, until. You see, the law was until Christ. Does that mean until Christ at the cross? Just at the cross? And then the law is no more? See, that's what we need to unpack, because that's not what it means. Because for many of us, maybe even some people in this room today, uh, you haven't come to the cross yet. You haven't come to the cross. And so you still need the conviction of the law on your heart. And then even as Christians, there's a reflection. There's something else that we need to see in that that's so important. And so he's going to go on and, 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 and he's going to fulfill this and answer this more clearly for us. But he concludes with these last two verses and then I'll pull us to a conclusion this morning. He says this. This is important and he'll unpack this in the next two weeks. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? See, th- this is still the unanswered question. And, and it's not like he, he's able to answer it completely there because we still have that problem with the law and grace today. Understanding how they're supposed to work together. Paul answers the comment very quickly, and it should again be a sealed deal for us, but it can't be until we understand. His answer is, certainly not. For a law, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So we're back to the point where we were earlier. Are the law and promised grace opposed to each other? Paul's answer, no. And then he clarifies it by, 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 by perfectly telling this, as us the one thing that the law cannot do. The one thing that the law cannot do is give life, eternal life. Bring a, a dead person who's dead in their trespasses and sins back to life. The law can't do that, is his point there. It's beautiful how he concludes. He says the Old Testament scripture tells us that it imprisoned all the world to sin is the literal translation. And so Paul's as much confessing here as he is trying to convict, right? He's confessing as much as preaching here. He's testifying to his own experience. He was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He tried to keep the law to the letter. In fact, he says, I did keep it perfectly. And so he's even seeing in himself here, he's realized that he was not simply a, 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 a sinner, but that he was a prisoner to sin because of the law. And so again, like, this is, what is this in, in judicial situations? It's called found guilty, right? And, and when you're found guilty, where are you sent? To prison. And this is the language that he's using and that he's unpacking for us here. So that's the purpose of the law, to show us that we do not just fall short of God's will, requiring us to muster up some more willpower on our own, but they, that we are completely under sin's power, requiring a rescue. And so the work of the law then is to convince us of our need for salvation by grace through Christ alone. Nothing else. It's the purpose of the law. Now, we'll see next week how that's flipped around and how it speaks to us today, even as Christians in this world today. I want to move to a conclusion here because I want to encourage you. <clears throat> I think one of the number one things that we, we get from studies like this is like we go, okay, we get a bunch of head knowledge. We're trying to pack it together, and then we, we, we leave here. We're like, ah. 
the Christian life doesn't seem to be any easier than the non-Christian life. In fact, I've got non-Christian friends who seem to be having a good time. And I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this. I got the t-shirt. We're struggling. But listen, number one, we have to remember that Jesus said this would not be a walk in the park. He said, take up your cross and what? Follow me. Suffer like me. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But we have great hope, don't we? We have great hope. I want to leave you with one last verse, actually three, um, that I'll read. And, and I want you to reread them in context to everything we've talked about today and about this encouragement. It's, the, I think, some of the most beautiful words of Jesus to all of us at any time. And he said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me. See, some of us, we look at this as that, well, this is salvation, right? This is just come to me because you're a sinner and you need me. Yeah. He says, look it, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And then he says, and I will, not you need to do, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, I think the great lesson for us here today is this. The Christian life is not going to be a walk in the park. It's not going to be easy. You're going to get attacked. We're going to get attacked even when we hear good news in a sermon. And I'm not saying a good sermon. I'm saying good news in a sermon because we don't hear it all the time that way. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus is saying, listen, (laughs) I died for you, but I'm here for you right now. Take my yoke. What does it mean by take my yoke? Let me do this for you. Oh, oh, you can't live the Christian life? That's okay. I can. (laughs) Let me help you. Look at all of the Ten Commandments that are out there and and just ask yourself, which one have I broken? How many have I broken in this past week? And hear Christ saying this to you. It's okay. I understand. I still love you. Nothing's changed. I can help you. Let's pray.